listening to First Church Charlotte. Uh, but we're looking forward to a chan- uh, for this opportunity for us to get to know each other. It's, it's an important thing. Uh, it's one thing to observe a church, but until you understand why we do what we do, how we fellowship, how we organize ourselves, you won't ever be quite as uh, close uh, as if you just observe from a distance. So that's starting today. I am going to preach, teach, however it comes out here for a little while from this subject, Physician Heal Thyself. Physician Heal Thyself. It's always one of my goals, as you know, uh, to try to take a, a spiritual truth Um, a biblical uh, understanding or image and present it in a way that it it lives for you it's it's new again it's fresh again and so this is the angle we're going to take here today again let me say to our guests and friends we're so honored that you've joined with us today we hope you feel right at home you might as well just have church with us that's all we're going to do here today is have some church can I have an amen from church folks all right, all right. So we've already, we've already baptized three people here this morning, and so excited about that. If you're watching this and you have not been baptized, I want you to know our church is here to serve you. Uh, we will make arrangements to baptize you, and it will be a great day to celebrate the covering of our sins and that adoption where you become his. You are no longer spiritual orphans, but he gives you his name. All right, let's get started. Physician, heal thyself. I'm reading Matthew chapter number 8, verse number 16. These scriptures are all in your notes if you choose to download them off the website. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to Jesus, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. In other words, Jesus' actions are demonstrating a prophetic destiny. It had always been the plan of God to manifest himself in this way. And the prophets, before he was even born, spoke that this was God's plan to manifest who he was. So this was to fulfill What was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, he took on our infirmities and carried our diseases. One of the most fundamental things for you to know about the manner in which God works among us is to be reminded of how God takes us as imperfect, broken beings and he begins a process of reformation, restoration, renewal in our life. How many of you here today have a testimony of how God changed your life? That's almost every hand, almost everybody in this house has a testimony of how God has changed their life. Many of these people, if you were to know them before today, you might would have found, you might would have discovered a less kind version of them. Uh, you might would have uh, not wanted to meet them. You might would have hid your wallet. But anyway, enough about me and my wife. Uh, <laughs> What do we mean when we talk about us being an apostolic church? Now, that word is used a lot, and sometimes if you aren't familiar with it, 
um, it kind of hits you. You're not exactly sure what is meant by it. This is very common uh, in religious circles because um, it's like various churches can get their own kind of language and they would know what they mean about things. But if you're on the outside, you're not exactly sure what they mean by those things. Like, for example, uh, when I was growing up, we often referred to ourselves as Pentecostal. Um, and the reason being is we knew what that meant. Well, uh, over time, there were so many people who were Pentecostal, nobody knew what they meant by Pentecostal. And uh, on one hand, it could be a mega church. On the other hand, it could be snake handlers up in the mountains. No one knew what Pentecostal was. And it eventually got to the point where 50, excuse me, 47% of Americans won't visit a church that has Pentecostal in the name. Uh, they don't know what they're walking into. Think about that. They will not, uh, they, they won't even visit. Uh, they don't know what they're walking into. I'm, uh, I'm not unsympathetic to that because once you lose control of the title, you can't really define what you mean by the title anymore. But apostolic is a term we use one with another. And what we're really saying is that we are organizing our church, organizing our service to be as, as, as authentic as possible uh, to the first century church that the apostles led, that the apostles founded. And so we will read how the apostles did it. Uh, we will read how they tried to do it. And, and, and admittedly, we, don't do every, we can't do everything like them uh, because of some uh, changes in uh, the world in which we live. But as much as possible. We want to be true to that. We want to read about Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost and preaching a message of repentance and then asking, telling them, I should say, that they should repent of their sins. They should be baptized in the name of Jesus. They should be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we want to accept, we want to accept it, embrace it, and celebrate it. Can I have a big amen? When we read in the New Testament church of them praying for people to be healed. That's why we pray for people to be healed. When we read about how a worship was done in a restoration of the worship that King David had shown in his tabernacle. When we read that and we read about them singing and clapping and uh, this is stuff we cover in first steps. We, we, we want to do it. We want to let our very body language express praise to God. When we read about how they laid hands on people carefully in time of COVID, <laughs> but um, how we laid hands on people, when we read about how they, how they anointed with oil, when we read about how they fasted and they prayed, we want to have a church where that feels like that. It doesn't mean that every single time where uh, people think we're drunk like they did on the day of Pentecost, that, that happened once in the New Testament church. Never again are they accused of being drunk, but they still have vigorous praise and worship. So we might be in a service where somebody gets to that point, and we might also be in a service where it's more of a teaching format, and we might be in a service where someone just leaps as high as they can, which in the case of some of us is not very high, uh, but we give it a, you understand what I'm saying, we want to be an apostolic church, and I have spent my whole life uh, in this apostolic reality. I, I was born as the apostolic son to an apostolic preacher, and at the age of five, I was the apostolic 
pastor's kid to an apostolic pastor. Uh, As a young man, I served in every ministry of the church with the exception of ladies' ministry. And as a teenager, I tried to serve in ladies' ministry. And that's what I always tell my first step class anyway. And um, every project the church has done, I've been a part of. I can take you around. I can show you both buildings. I was a part of this. I did this. I framed that wall. I hung that acoustic ceiling. I've been my whole life in this apostolic context. Context. Uh, I went to an apostolic college and I got a degree in uh, religious studies uh, and uh, in, in apostolic ministry. I minored in Bible. I married the daughter of an apostolic pastor and we spent nearly 10 years of our life traveling every week to apostolic churches all across America where I tried to be a part of their ongoing uh, revival. I came back home after 10 years uh, abroad, (laughs) and I became a staff pastor here uh, at the church. I was that for eight years, and then 12 years ago, honor of my life, I was elected uh, lead pastor here at First Church, and I say all of that for this reason. I uh, I feel like fairly qualified to have an opinion about apostolic churches. (laughs) I feel like I have been exposed to a few apostolic pastors, and I have uh, listened to a few apostolic apostolic sermons in my life. And I say all that to say this. Um, If you would look for a word that would define the apostolic movement, um, I think better than any other word, uh, I think I have credibility in my opinion, and that is this. The apostolic movement is defined by its zeal for the Lord. We are zealous for the Lord. Can I have a big amen? Uh, We don't do everything right all the time, and there's many mistakes that have been made, but um, we we are zealous from the Lord and I, for the Lord. And I say that as somebody who I've been apostolic born and I was apostolic bred. And when I die, I will be verily, verily apostolic dead. Uh, this is all I know. Uh, I've been around the creek over the hill. I've been to the flea market and the rodeo. And I participated in all events. Um, We are so zealous for the Lord that sometimes our strength can be a weakness. And um, I have uh, had cause to consider recently how um, just how common it is for people uh, to have been exposed to an apostolic family, an apostolic church, an apostolic event, and not know how to take it, to be in some way um, even uh, damaged by the good intention people in uh, their life because this is the truth. Our strength is often our weakness. Now, if you live a few years and you stack up a little bit of wisdom credits, you will, you will agree with me. Oftentimes, our strength is our weakness. And sometimes, as parents, sometimes as pastors, um, we have done some harm by being zealous in a less than temperate way. And as pastors and parents and soul winners, we have at times pushed too hard and, and the like. Even so, God has chosen to use us even in our mistakes how many of you have ever made a mistake Uh, that's about 30% of you the rest of you need to come to the altar Um, God is still using you in your mistakes God is still loving people through you even though you made some mistakes I have made tremendous mistakes here is the truth God uses imperfect things 
God uses imperfect people. God uses broken vessels. He uses people like you, like me, and uh, nobody in the church always gets everything right. So let me explore this idea here for a moment. If you give God something that is imperfect, what does he do with that? If you give God something that has some good in it and some bad in it, uh, but perhaps even more bad than good or more flesh than spirit or more despair than joy, if you give that to God, what does he do with it? So, Let me take a moment and give you a little bit of uh, hopefully fascinating history about the profession we think of as medicine. Uh, Medicine is a very respected profession today. In fact, I have uh, two medical doctors in my family, and I've been with them many times where uh, there was a room full of preachers or a restaurant full of preachers and a medical doctor, and it has been my experience that on average, uh, medical doctors get more respect from their society than preachers do by by far. Uh, it is a very respected profession. It is uh, in many ways respectable, and I think uh, that is a good thing. We actually have a lot of medical professionals in our church, and uh, I'm grateful grateful for that because uh, you, are, you are serving God and you are people of faith and yet you are still successful in the world in which God has placed you to influence. Can I have a big amen from the church folks? So uh, it's respected today, but medicine wasn't always respected. I'm just going to let that sink in here for a moment. Medicine doctors were not always respected. The Old Testament does not have a single reference to a doctor or a medicine healing a single person, not one. And in spite of the fact that there were honored and honorable physicians among the uh, Hebrew society we read about in the Bible, and uh, in spite of that, there are writings among the writings of the rabbis. Real quick, you may remember, uh, there's the Torah, that is the Hebrew Bible, that's the first five books of our Bible, the Christian Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that is the Hebrew Bible, that's the Torah, and then there's the Mishnah. Mishnah is is the writings of interpretation and application that were done by the rabbis to help you understand the Torah. One of those um, writings from the Mishnah is this line, the best among the physicians are destined for hell. <laughs> Well, tell us how you really feel. Um, This is a line from the writings of the rabbis. It wasn't always an honorable profession. The best among the physicians are destined for Gehenna uh, or hell. Uh, Also, uh, if you look further in the Mishnah, uh, listed among the trades of robbers, trades of robbers, uh, by the Mishnah, rabbis list the physician as being one of the trades of robbers. Here's the interesting thing. If a doctor wanted to cheat you and you did not know much about health or medicine, it would be very easy for that doctor to cheat you. You see what I'm saying? It's like when you take your car to a mechanic. If, if you are not a mechanic yourself, you better uh, hope that you found an honorable mechanic because otherwise he can just uh, charge you for a new transmission and just take the bolts out and put them back in. And you see where the bolts have been moved, but that's all. Uh, you, you see what I'm saying? Doctors, because of the difference in knowledge, what they know versus what 
uh, you as the patient would know, if they wanted to teach you, it'd be very easy. Nowadays, uh, we have a fairly uh, well-developed legal system, and we have a fairly, uh, uh, fairly developed civil society, and you can get second opinions, and second opinions are, are important, uh, but uh, if your doctor wanted to cheat you, it would be very difficult to know that you were being cheated, and in this day and age, doctors were considered suspect characters. They were listed as the kind of people who would steal and cheat and lie, they were the used car salesmen of their day, which is very unfair to car salesmen. Some are good, some are bad. They're just people. Uh, It's silly to put them all in a category. Um, But as far as the pop culture, that was how uh, physicians would have been viewed in their time. Now, let me give you a little more history. In the world in which Jesus came, in this time in which Jesus came was the ascendancy of the Roman Empire. Greece had already, had already faded from world power scene, the world power scene, and now had a civil influence, but Rome held the power. And you can read, we actually have a good bit of history from that Greco-Roman world, and you can read how physicians were viewed and how uh, the opinions of the people uh, were formed in, directives, in, in terms of physicians. The Hippocratic Oath banned, this is in the time, or right right before the time of Jesus, the Hippocratic Oath bans doctors from poisoning their patients. Why? Because it was a problem. It wasn't just a problem of the accident, do no harm. It was more than that. Uh, The Romans, we know this from Roman history, they despised their doctors. They hated that they needed them. In fact, Rome's first official physician, who had a name that uh, is a beautiful name, you all should consider using it for your next child, it's Arcagthus, Arcagthus, the first official, they laughed in the 9 a.m service, but they're not laughing in the 11 a.m. service. Uh, The first official doctor of Rome, uh, he was given a nickname called the executioner. Uh, that in uh, the in their their vernacular in the Latin would have been uh, carniflex, and it was the executioner because even the official doctor of Rome killed more patients than he helped. Think about that. Roman physicians, interestingly enough, um, were expert poisoners. In fact, Roman physicians knew more about poison than they did about healing. They were expert poisoners. You're not quite convinced, so just listen a little while further. Roman doctors were routinely hired by one person to kill another person. Uh, One Roman of high standing would hire a doctor as a poisoner to kill another citizen of high standing. Emperor Claudius was killed by his own official poisoner. And yes, official poisoner. He had a poison, a, an official poisoner on his staff. While the Roman poet Juvenal, he was, he was an acute observer of Roman high society. And he wrote uh, in his writings uh, that uh, A good poisoner is indispensable to anyone hoping to get anywhere in Roman high society. Are you starting to perceive a problem here? Uh, Juvenile tells the story of the woman who, upon poisoning her husband, discovered that he had 
He had figured out what she was going to do and taken the antidote beforehand. And embarrassingly, she had to kill him by stabbing him to death. This is a weird world that we're referring to. Um, business was so good for poisoners that every person of uh, any notoriety had to have a personal tasters. They called them pregustatories. They were professional tasters to keep you from being poisoned. Uh, and they trained, they literally trained to taste poison in food. And if they couldn't, well, they died and saved their employer. Uh, Emperor Nero was so happy about his poisoner, who was a lady named uh, Locusta, that he had her found and charter her own school to train other poisoners on how to poison people. And all of these people were also known as doctors. So Jesus comes and he chooses healing as a sign of his deity. I preached a message a few weeks back on the subject, why God chose healing. And I showed you all the scriptures where God uses healing as a testimony to his power and his divinity. And I, I've since, since doing that study, I've spent a lot of time reflecting upon it, which led to this message that I, I want to share and, and hopefully show you something in this. God shows healing as a sign of his divinity. Matthew chapter number four, verse number 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him. All who were ill with various diseases, though suffering acute pain, the demon possessed. Notice how demon possession is almost always noted right with healing in the New Testament writings. The demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, they brought all of these people to Jesus. And what did he do? He healed them as a sign of who he was. Heaven testifies to earth by making whole the wounded, broken, sick reality of the human condition. And then Jesus lets it stand as a timeless, eternal testimony of who God is and how much we need him. Stay with me here just for a moment. Mark chapter 1, verse number 32. That evening after sunset, people brought to Jesus all who were sick and demon-possessed. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 23. Uh, the centurion pleaded with him my little daughter is near death please come and place your hands on her so that she will be healed and live all of these are signs that he's more than just a man he could have used signs that simply demonstrated power he could have made a planet that orbited opposite of the earth but every day testified of his power he could have moved the sun he could have caused the the river of stars in the night sky to change its axis to the earth. He could have simply spoke and anything been done, but instead he chose to show the miraculous counterpoint to your need for the miraculous. 
He chose to show what he could do opposite to my need for what he could do. Is there anybody hearing what I'm trying to preach here today? God chose to demonstrate authority, not as its own thing, but in exact opposition, as an exact opposite to my desperate need for God to put this mess I make back together again, for God to deliver me from the oppression of the enemy, for God to heal this broken mind that won't let me sleep, for God to heal this broken heart that causes me to damage so much of what I touch. I need God so much that when he shows up, he says, I see you. I'm not just out floating among the galaxies. I see you. I could do many things, but I see you. I want to tell someone here today, whatever you're facing, God wants to show up here in a manner where you cannot leave without knowing he sees you. He knows the tears you cry. He knows the pain you face. It's not enough for you to know the great things of what God has done. You need to see the great things of what God will do for you. This becomes a sign of divinity in Jesus, his willingness to find what you need most right now, not what you ought to care about, not what he wished you care about, but what you need right now. Is anybody hearing me today? As Christians, we have to be so sensitive to where people are, not where we wish they were. We have to be sensitive to what they need, not what we wish they needed. We have to start with the right now. God could do many things but nothing is more important than what you need right now. This becomes the testimony of the heart of God. He's not just God overall. He sees your pain. He's not just in the heaven, some type of a glorious entity beyond imagining. No, he sees the disease in your body and he wants to work right now in your life. Even when questioned by John the Baptist who was having a a doubt crisis. And uh, even then where John the Baptist sends his followers to ask Jesus this question, which on one level could be taken as an insult. Are you the one or should we look for another? It's so easy for us to lose our way even when we're trying to do everything right. It's easy for us to have strength and weakness in the same human package. It's easy for us to make a mistake with the same zeal with which we did something right. And this is John the Baptist saying, are you the one or should we look another? Jesus does not send him a message of theology. Jesus does not send him an argument of uh, epistemology. He does not present him with some uh, heuristic of philosophy. I'm giving you some $5 words so you'll think I'm smart today. Uh, Jesus does not rebuke him for being without faith. Jesus sends him testimony of what? Miracles, healings, He says, go tell John, the blind see, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised to life again. God chose to show the answered need as testimony of who he was, his sign of divinity. I'm trying to preach to you in a manner today where you could begin to believe that God would work in your life right now. 
I want you to believe that God could heal your sick body today. I want you to believe God could make a difference in your life in the here and now. I could give seven levels of theological insight if I studied long enough, but nothing is more important than what is killing you right now. And that's where God will demonstrate his power and his authority. We see this examples in Matthew chapter number eight. We see four stories given to us and all of them speak directly to healing and the relationship that Jesus has as a healer. The first story in Matthew chapter number eight shows us that it is God's will to heal people, not just if they get something right or if they get lucky, but his willingness to heal everybody. The second story is of the centurion who understands authority and understands that healing is not a magic trick. It is a demonstration of spiritual authority. We do not understand that enough. And a lot of times we tend to think of healing as a sign of uh, us getting faith right, as if healing is a test of us and not a demonstration of God. Uh, This centurion could teach us something when he goes about saying, if you speak, it will be done because healing is a testimony of spiritual authority. Can I have an amen in the house? The third story shows us the practical need of healing. Jesus is at Peter's home. And if I remember correctly, Peter's mother-in-law is sick and she needs to be hosting. She needs to be caring for people. Instead, She is sick, and uh, Jesus heals her in the here and now. At that moment, perhaps, it doesn't seem important to everybody, but it's important to her. And you see the heart of God manifest through the power of this moment. And the fourth story is, once again, a large crowd finds them, and Jesus, again, heals them all as a demonstration that there is no limit to what God can do. God can heal the stranger. God can heal the leader. God can heal the mother-in-law near to you who is practically sick in a moment of service and just needs help to get through her day. Has anyone ever felt like that? And then again, he can go right back to the crowd and he can heal everybody. There is no shortage. These are the lessons of Jesus's healing power. And this is so established and so demonstrated and so manifest in the life of Jesus that they begin to call him the great physician. I thought physicians were crooks. Well, yeah, that's a problem. I thought physicians were cheats. Yeah, it's a problem. I thought physicians would tell you you had one sickness and take your money. It's like one man went to the doctor and he said, doctor, I've got to be uh, honest with you. I'm afraid. I'm afraid that of doctors and I'm afraid of being treated and I'm afraid that uh, you'll just take my money and won't make me better. Uh, the doctor said, why are you so afraid of that? He said, well, I had a friend. He went to the doctor and he, he, had, uh, he had pneumonia. The doctor told him he had typhus and a few days later he died of typhus. The doctor said, oh, don't worry about it. I promise you, you'll only die from the stuff I tell you you have. 
That's not what he was looking for, was it? I thought doctors could be trusted. I thought doctors, I thought, and yet in this day, in this world now, it's an honored profession and the vast majority of our doctors do their best every day and we should be thankful for them. We are not against them. Uh, They do a lot of good work. Uh, And I want you to see, but in this day, it was considered the trade of robbers. And that's even what the rabbis say. It's considered a, uh, it is a manner in which you could be ripped off. And here, what has Jesus done? He has come and he too is known as a physician, but there's something different about this physician. He is the great physician. Watch what happened. Jesus enters an ugly world and what does he do with it? He makes it beautiful. Jesus enters an ugly context, the ugly history of religion. And what does he do? He makes it beautiful. Jesus is identified by an ugly tradition of the physician. What does he do? He makes it beautiful. It isn't, you see, it isn't so much about God abandoning, burying and starting over as it is about God's ability to take the broken, the ugly, and the hopeless. And when he's done, it has a completely different reputation. You see, God's in the business of taking the broken, the ugly, that which has been wrong, that which has done wrong and been wrong. And when he's done, it is as though the whole story has been rewritten. You see, this profession is ugly, yes. And Jesus will take it as a sign and he will make it beautiful. I want you to see something. It isn't just the sick patient who needs to be saved. It's the physician who needs to be saved too. It isn't just the Uh, a patient. It's the doctor. It isn't just uh, the sinner. It is the Sadducee. They both need to be healed. It isn't just uh, the transgressor. It is the Pharisee. But the problem is to their own devices, the physicians of the day are going to be left to their own abilities. It isn't just the sick who need to be made whole. It is the physician that needs to be whole. And the truth is, the physician cannot heal himself. The Pharisee cannot save himself. All of the prophets of the Old Testament who come and preach to the religious hierarchy of Israel are all basically saying a prophetic preacher, preacher, preaching version of this challenge. Physician, heal yourself. You who would lead others in righteousness, you need to be righteous. You who would show others the way, you need to find the way. What is it that Jesus preaches to the Pharisees and the Sadducees when he comes? Uh, you need to repent. It's not just the sinner that needs to repent. It's not just the broken that needs to repent. You, Pharisee, you look good on the outside, but inside you're full of spiritual death physician heal thyself but the physician cannot heal themselves remember how I started out talking about the zeal 
that is in the apostolic movement. Zeal is probably the, the, the most common thing that you could use to fairly describe the apostolic movement. We, uh, we do theology, but we aren't known for theologians. And uh, we, we, we do a lot of things. We do counseling, but we're not known for that. Uh, other groups may be known better for all of those things. But the one thing that you would say when you come into an apostolic service is just how zealous it feels, just how... Uh, everything is organized to stir your heart and to focus your attention on God. And I, I want to say that how whatever your religious upbringing in, uh, up your upbringing is, there is something powerful about you coming to the house of the Lord, focusing your mind, lifting your voice and offering praise to your creator. Can I have a big amen? There's something powerful about it. The reason why when our praise team sings, they're all the try- time trying to get you to sing. They're trying to get you to clap. They're trying to get you to wave your hands because it's not enough for them to worship. You need to be a worshiper. Our services must feel as though we are zealous for the kingdom of God. We are hungry for the promises of God. That's a good thing, but the truth is that our zeal can sometimes uh, cause us to make mistakes that uh, hurt people, and I have seen, and you've probably heard about terrible uh, excesses of zeal. I've heard about pastors who, uh, in their zeal, they've done some things that probably shouldn't have been done, and I've heard of uh, parents who, in their zeal, have done some things that probably shouldn't have been done, and I, I talk to so many people who you invite them to come to church and they tell you a story why they don't go to church. I find it so common. I, I, I have calls at times to talk to people who grew up in the church and they don't want nothing to do to ch- with church. And you ask them if God offended them. God's never the problem. God's presence is never the problem. It was the problem. The problem is they met the church before they met the Savior. And we can be guilty of zeal that is in some way well-intentioned, but at its core is misguided. And it's not enough for us to point at others and say that. I have to stand before you as a pastor and tell you in confession that I could tell you stories where my well-intended zeal went wrong and I fear that I did more damage than I did good. And I, even today, though I repented as soon as I saw myself, and though I, 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 I worried and asked God to change me so that probability, that risk would change within me, and, and now because of these things I've been exposed to, maybe I err on the side of being too gentle with people. Maybe some of you would do a little bit better if I would get up here on a Sunday and I'd kick you as hard as I could right in the seat of your pants. Maybe you need that. Maybe some of you would uh, be a little bit better if you had a drill sergeant instead of a shepherd, and uh, maybe the Lord will give me that courage sometime, or maybe I'll bring in a pastor who just doesn't care because he's leaving anyway. I want you to see we are all formed by these things. It has been my, uh, just recently to sit and talk to people who were raised by people that were so well-intentioned, they were so zealous, but they broke something in the people they were trying to force to do good. As parents, we wrestle with this. I preached about this last week. How hard can you uh, push? How hard can you force? And uh, how much of this 
relationship with God can be given by somebody, I think almost none of it. It almost all of it has to be pursued and hungered for. And yes, errors of zeal has happened and the church at times has made mistakes, but I want to say this, God uses imperfect people. God uses imperfect churches. God uses imperfect pastors and God brings good out of it anyway. I want to tell you, no matter how many mistakes a preacher like me may make, I want to tell you God will come into a church service and do what this preacher could never do. I want you to see that God does not start over by first writing you off, by saying you made too many mistakes for you to be useful. God takes that which is in error and he invests in it and he washes it and he puts it back together. And when he's done with it, you're still a physician, but now you are the great physician. I want to show you this in the scripture because it's so fundamental. How does God restore? You see, this is how God takes what we give him. And when he's done with it, it's not the same thing we had. The first thing he does is he restores. Uh, So much of the scripture gives the story, the promise, the prophecy, and the insight of spiritual restoration. Some of us at one time of our life was most closer to God than we are right now. Uh, Some of you lovely people watching online, there was a day in your life where you were much closer to God than you are uh, right now. You've allowed yourself to, shall we say, get a little cold, grow a little stale. I'll let you pick your metaphor, but I want you to know this. God has not given up on you. He would like to take whatever is left and restore you for his kingdom. This promise is over and over in the scripture. I want you to know you can grow up in the church, you can walk away from God, and you can come back into the church as an adult. We have testimonies of people just like that here today. I want you to know you can grow up in toxic environments where you are damaged by your upbringing, you are abused by the people who should care for you, but God's not given up on you. You are not so far gone. If you're a backslider, I want you to know you are not so far gone. I know us church people use the backslider like we're better than you. Let me tell you a secret. We're all backsliders. It's just some of us come to church more often than others. We all need to be restored. In fact, the Bible says you need it new every morning. I said you need it new every morning. Somebody say yes. I said you need it new every morning. Somebody ought to say, I need it new every morning. And God is in the business of restoring. He is in the business of restoring. God restores. God resurrects. This is what God does even with death. The sign of resurrection is first in the ministry of Jesus as a sign of his authority. And it is in the gospel story, the resurrection of Jesus, as a sign of his victory. First is authority. He speaks and the dead rise. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And then he says, destroy this body. And in three days, I will raise it up again. 
One is a demonstration of authority. The other is a demonstration of victory. God went where your sins would take you and he said to hell, give me the keys to this kingdom down here and you no longer can be held against his grace. What does God do? He restores. He resurrects. That is the point of being filled with his spirit. That is the point of new life in our testimony. He restores. The Bible, even in the book of Joel, talks about how God can restore the days and the years that have been lost through the effects of sin. That's in the book of Joel, chapter number two, verse number 25. God can restore even the effects of sin on your life. Israel will be restored. All that the the canker worm has devoured will be restored. Job, it looks like you've lost everything, but you will be restored. You will be resurrected. Remember the story of, it's a poem in the Old Testament of how uh, the good shepherd finds uh, the the, the last remaining pieces of a a lamb that has been ravaged by wolves. And the lamb is beyond death. The lamb has been consumed. And there's only pieces remaining. And the question is, is that enough for God to bring renewal? Is that enough for God to bring resurrection? And the story shows in the beautiful poetry of the Old Testament that God can restore when all there is left is a few ribs and a little bit of an ear. Because that is how God, that is how far God felt Israel had fallen. They were a shadow of their former self. But the testimony of God is that he takes what is left and saves it. He takes what is left and saves it. This is shown in the feeding of the 5,000. After everything has been consumed, they gather that which remains. Now, the miracle continued as long as they handed it out. The Bible calls what is left fragments. This is not the stuff you save and heat up later. This is the fragment that someone ate half of and then tossed aside. It's not whole fish that are being saved. It's fragments. It's not whole pieces of bread that are being saved. It's fragments. And Jesus shows the most important lesson. It could be that the greatest lesson is not in the miracle. It's in what happens after the miracle. We don't waste the fragments around here. Someone used you up and tossed what was left of you aside. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing be lost. You, know, you want to know what a church is? A church is the fragments that remain. Life thought it would destroy some of you, but look at you here today, restored, renewed. You testify of the great physician. So what does God do? And I'm almost done. Musicians come. He restores, number one. Number two, he resurrects. And number three, what does he do? He renames. He renames. In the past, you were called a grasper and a cheater, but I'm giving you a new name. You're going to be known as one who has power with God. 
he gives a new name. Simon is no longer uh, Simon, but Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. God uses names to signify new hope, a new day. Remember Hosea, the prophet who marries a harlot as a sign, living out how God has been betrayed by his people. The names of Hosea's children were, first, no mercy, and second, not my people. This is the names of Hosea's children born to him by a harlot. The name means no mercy. The second name means not my people. But God doesn't leave them that way. Yes, your past is shameful. Yes, your history is shameful. But God's not going to leave you with that old name of shame. He changes no mercy to be my loved one. And he changes not my people to my people. I just want to say to all you guys, you my people. Simon becomes Peter. And so it is that uh, Jacob will become Israel. And there's more in the story than that. But I, I want to try so much to show you as we're almost, almost done here. I want to show you how God first finds you where you are, heals you where you are, and then uses you to redefine what you are, and then uses what you've become to change the image of what you were. Now that sounds confusing? Thank you very much. I intended it that way. First is the old you. Then there is the transformed you. And then there's the transformed everything. Let me say it again. First is the old you, the old way, the broken, the sinner. Then is the, tr- the new you. And then, that's not the end, is the new everything. Now let me show you this in the example of the great physician. Remember I gave you some history on how physicians were viewed uh, as crooks. And then I showed you how Jesus would come to be known as the great physician. First was the old. Physicians are crook. Crooks. We're all crooks. We all need healing. Then is the one who can transform. The one who can save. The one who can heal. Then comes testimony or the transformation of everything. Once Christians were allowed to come out of hiding in the Roman Empire. You see... Constantine, Emperor Constantine, granted his first edict of toleration in 311 AD. And this meant that Christians would no longer be persecuted, but they would be tolerated. When that happened, the Christians began emerging from their uh, cover, shall we say. Before it was dangerous, and now because they're accepted, they're able to show their heart, not hide their face. This is so important because as a church, we're always tempted to hide our face. We're religious here, but no one else knows we're religious. When what God needs us to do is show our heart. It's not enough to show our face here. We need to show our heart there. So when Christians are no longer persecuted, they're able to show their heart. Now, they had already shown what kind of people they were they were transformed into by God. You can read about Clement, who was an early church father. 
and how at the end of the first century in uh, Rome, he led the Christian community there in taking care of the plight of poor widows and orphans. In the second century, when the plague of, uh, that hit Carthage in the second century, uh, the pagan households did what they always did, which was, you know, face the truth and be very practical. And if you had the plague, they kicked you out of their house. They literally put you in the street. You were sick, but that was the only way they wouldn't get it. Uh, Christians showed a different path in, in the plague of Carthage in the second century. They went to the very people that had been abandoned by their families and pushed out into the streets and they invited them to come into their, their houses. They took care of them. They helped them. Uh, that was a testimony. They were seen on the streets and recorded in history. We actually have good history of, these, of this time. Uh, they were seen on the streets offering comfort, taking them into their own houses to be cared for. But then 311 AD, uh, Constantine changed the stance of the empire and Christians were accepted. The edict of toleration and Christians came out of hiding. They immediately began to make a difference in their world by helping sick people, by helping poor people. They begin to make a difference. You see, first God finds you where you are, then God works on you. And then God uses you to change everything. Do you see the process of transformation that is happening here? So after this edict, they begin to really be known as those who helped sick people. They became known as those who would take in even plague people with the plague. And when the emperor in 355 AD, the emperor Julian, he tried to turn the empire back to the old gods of Rome following on the transformation that Emperor Constantine had had led. When Emperor Julian tried to turn it back, he wrote in his letters, we have copies of these today, it's his apology, it's, that's, the, that's the, uh, the word used, his defense of turning the empire back to the old gods. He says that if the old religion wants to succeed, it would need to care for people better than the Christians had. But here's the problem. At the core of all those old religions, there's brokenness and there is sickness and there is pain and there is suffering, but there is no one who can heal and there is no testimony of those who have been healed. And so those old gods fade into the history books. Why? Because at their core, there is no healing. And so out of the shadows comes the Christians and the Christians want everyone to be whole. And so in 369 AD, the very first hospital of all history is founded by a Christian. St. Basil of Caesarea founds the first 300-bed hospital for the seriously ill and disabled. They take in victims of the plague. They have a hospice for poor and they have care for the aged. They have wards for sick travelers. They have a leprosy house so you're not cast out of the community. And for the first time in world history, 
not counting a field uh, station where after a battle, soldiers were cared for. For the first time in history, Christians establish a place of healing because what God does is this. First, he meets you where you are and he makes you whole. Then he shows you the way. He shows you how you can lead others. He shows you how you can carry a promise. And then through you, he changes everything. First, he changes you. Then he shows you the way. And through you, he changes everything. You want to know what the church is supposed to be doing? First, we meet the great physician. And we are made whole. Am I preaching to anybody who's been made whole here today? First, you are made whole. (coughs) First, you are washed. God doesn't abandon you, hide you, bury you. No, he was buried for you. He was the one who was buried, and he didn't stay that way. He takes you, yes, old con man you. Old you that would cheat them and lie to them. It wasn't just you who had a problem. You had a reputation. And God heals you. What you couldn't do for others, he did for you. What you cheated others for, he did for you. And then he changes how you're viewed by the world in which he places you. And then, having changed you, you, with his power, change everything. This is the work of a local church. This is what God wants to do with every one of us here today. We cannot stay broken. Or our testimony cannot be told to a broken world. What's been killing you, you need to surrender to God and let his healing flow into your life. Because you aren't the only one who is sick around here. There's a whole world that needs your testimony. You say, but someone hurt me. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. A church hurt me. Yes, it did. Mistakes were made. Yes, there were. But let's not stop with the story. Let's find the great physician. And let's let healing flow into our life. And then through us, let's let healing flow into our world so that we become the people who everyone says if you're looking to be healed you should go try that Christian hospital down there called First Church you see down there they accept sick people down there they accept broken people down there they accept weak people Down there, they accept strangers and travelers. You ought to try them. I heard they have a great physician there. And I heard they all have been trained by this great physician on how to carry the promise of heaven to a broken world. God's a healer. Would you stand with me all across the house? Don't 
resist the call of God on your life. I know there, there's some of you that you just enjoyed the message, but there's some of you that the Holy Ghost is working on right now. There's some of you that feel the conviction of the, the, that love of God knocking on your heart door right now. And I want to challenge you to respond in your spirit. I want to challenge you to surrender your heart to God. You may be watching this from your living room or your kitchen table. I want you to, I want you to be challenged in your heart to say, God, I've held back long enough. I've tried to fix myself long enough. I need to be healed so my testimony can change my world. Would you all, would all of you pray that prayer with me right now, Lord Jesus? I'm praying for every broken one who comes to us. I'm praying for every wounded heart that joins with us in worship and prayer. God, I pray for every visitor. I pray for every person under the sound of my voice. Oh, Lord Jesus, let the healing be a testimony of who you are and how you work. Let it be healing in our body, yes. Let it be healing in our mind, yes. Let it be healing in our spirit, yes. Let the old damages and the old pains and the old wounds be washed away. Let us be partakers of the divine nature. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.